Hello, podcast listeners. I am Dr. James Cole, and I'm happy to once again be recording my latest edition of Healthcare in America, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. In my last podcast, I ripped off the bandage that once covered up our nation's mental health crisis, exposing that ugly wound for all to see. And today I'm going to reveal just how deeply it penetrates as mental health problems often contribute to the very important public health subject matter of my talk today. Today's podcast is all about the ever-present societal scourge of substance abuse and our nation's opioid epidemic. Unfortunately, too many of those with mental illness turn to various substances to medicate away their suffering. And like mental illness, substance abuse is a topic largely kept in the closet for most people and for most family members. Of course, for as long as there have been substances which alter the mind, the mood, and the body, there have been those who've abused them, there have been those who've become addicted to them, there have been those that have lost their lives to them. Over 20 million adults are substance abusers, and that doesn't even take into account all the smokers who can't kick the habit of cigarettes, perhaps one of the most addictive substances out there. To give you some basic information, the most commonly abused substance is alcohol, understandably, as it's legal, it's socially acceptable to drink, and it's sold in nearly every community across the country. And among those who abuse any other drug, three-quarters of them also abuse alcohol. Polysubstance abuse, that is, people abusing more than just one thing, is rather common. The most common illicit substance abused in this country is marijuana, followed by the prescription pain relievers known as the opioids, then cocaine, tranquilizers and sedatives, stimulants, hallucinogens, methamphetamine, inhalants, and finally heroin. Substance abuse has a profound adverse financial effect on society, costing Americans three quarters of a trillion dollars each year in lost productivity, health-related treatment expenses, and crime-related costs. Almost 100,000 people die each year as a result of alcohol abuse, and the majority of them die from one or more of the long-term effects of alcohol, such as uncontrolled gastrointestinal hemorrhage, cirrhosis and liver failure, heart disease due to alcohol-induced cardiac failure, the various cancers precipitated or worsened by the body's repeated exposure to too much alcohol. Alcoholics lose many years of their functional lives, and alcoholism remains the leading cause of preventable death in America. Many alcoholics eventually suffer from organic brain syndrome, precipitating a premature dementia-like condition, often causing them to be dependent on nursing home care far sooner than the rest of the population. Another 100,000 substance abusers die annually from non-alcohol-related overdose. Synthetic opioids top the list with 31,000 annual overdose deaths, followed by another 15,000 deaths due to heroin overdose. Another 15,000 succumb to cocaine overdose. Methamphetamines kill 13,000 each year, and benzodiazepines such as Xanax, Clonopin, Librium, and Valium kill another 11,000 annually as a result of unintentional or intentional overdose. Whereas over 200,000 annual substance abuse deaths may not seem like an alarming number considering the enormity of this nation, keep in mind that that equals approximately a third of all of our nation's cancer-related deaths each year, thus the numbers really are quite sobering when it's all put into perspective. And to keep it all real, whereas there are really are a lot of substance abuse-related overdose deaths, for every fatal overdose, there are countless additional non-fatal overdoses. These can be particularly tragic as, for example, opioid overdose causes people to stop breathing, and the resultant oxygen deprivation often causes permanent brain injury. Some people who have been successfully revived following a drug overdose exist for the rest of their lives in somewhat of a minimal functioning state, depending on the care of others with little, if any, hope for recovery. 
The reasons for substance abuse are complicated. There are biological, psychological, and social components of substance abuse, all of which contribute to the matter. Up to half of all who repeatedly abuse drugs or alcohol do have a genetic predisposition, putting them at risk. The psychological component of substance abuse is also quite strong. As I previously stated, many people with mental illness self-medicate so as to help control or temporarily ameliorate their symptoms. And approximately 10 million substance abusers in this country alone have also been diagnosed with one of the most common psychiatric disorders. The social and environmental influences contributing to America's substance abuse problem include ongoing chaos in the home or within the family unit, past or often repeated physical or psychological abuse in a close personal relationship, and laissez-faire attitudes among parents or within families in general toward alcohol, drugs, or other illegal substances. In addition, peer influences pressuring teens and young adults into experimenting at an early age contribute to the problem, as does a general acceptance of various forms of substance abuse within many community circles these days. And the final contributor is a lack of education and real understanding as to the harmful effects of the numerous substances of abuse readily available to those who seek them. Experimentation with drugs often begins in the teen years, and it's estimated that up to 20% of all students have tried some sort of illicit substance by the completion of their eighth grade year. By the time they graduate high school, approximately half of all students are included in that category. Marijuana is the most common illicit substance tried, and there is a lot of evidence out there showing that THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, or the psychoactive component of marijuana, is found in much higher levels and with greater effective potency when compared to the marijuana smoked during the 1970s during those peak years of consumption. Repeated exposure to higher levels of THC has been linked to increasing and long-lasting anxiety among our youth. And according to a Chicago-area clinical toxicology specialist who is considered to be an expert in marijuana and all of its derivatives, there is real reason for concern. Fortunately, illicit substance abuse among teens and young adults does decline with age, as many simply turn away from the drug culture. But there is a share of young abusers who never give it up, who can't give it up, and many of them develop lifelong habits. For those who are unable to break their dependency on any of the various forms of the abused substances, there is treatment. But whereas approximately 15% of substance abusers likely need some sort of professional substance abuse treatment program, only about 2% of them will ever enter rehab. Among those surveyed who are determined to have a substance abuse problem, the vast majority, 95% in fact, feel that they do not need substance abuse rehab and thus they do not even consider seeking it out. 3% of those who meet criteria feel that they do need treatment but simply don't want to go through with the entire process and thus never get the real help that they truly need. And the lowly 2% of those remaining are among the very few who recognize that they do need help and they do enter some sort of a substance abuse rehabilitation program. Thus, only a tiny fraction of substance abusers receive significant professional help, and thus America continues to have a substance abuse epidemic, and that is a real problem. Alcohol is the substance abused with greatest frequency in this nation and most others. Drinking too much can cause a myriad of adverse physical, psychological, social, and legal consequences and probably causes more destruction than any of the other substances of abuse. But of course, there are countless people who consume alcohol with great regularity but do so responsibly and without adverse effects. But for those who simply cannot control their drinking, broken families, damaged personal relationships, and failure at school or in the workplace are not uncommon. Those who drink too much have an increased incidence of esophageal and colon cancer, liver failure, and early death. 
30% of all motor vehicle deaths are due to excessive alcohol consumption. And when too much drinking results in violence and acts of aggression, the legal and often financial consequences can be substantial. But the alcohol ship has long since set sail. It is such an established part of our culture that I don't think that there's anything left that anyone can say about alcohol that might influence anyone's opinion on the matter in any way, shape, or form. And in fact, whereas I could say a lot more about marijuana, that subject has become such a political hot potato that I don't even think there's much of anything that I could say that might influence the public without creating an even greater divide between the advocates and the opponents of the marijuana industry and its consumers. And thus, I will still steer clear of those social and political landmines. But what about our nation's cocaine, amphetamine, and benzodiazepine abuse problems? These are at least worthy of some brief discussion before I get into our nation's biggest problem with the greatest potential for change, and that's the opioid epidemic, which I'll get into shortly. As I said previously, 15,000 Americans die each year due to cocaine overdose. 13,000 die due to methamphetamine overdose, and another 11,000 die from benzodiazepine overdose. That's 39,000 deaths in all three categories combined, with numerous additional people suffering the lifelong consequences of a non-fatal overdose. Over 600,000 people in this country use cocaine at least once each year. Cocaine is highly addictive, and it causes immediate intense euphoria, increased alertness, and increased energy. Because its effects go away so quickly, many cocaine abusers repeatedly snort, inhale, or smoke the substance over and over, causing the heart to race and the blood pressure to skyrocket. Extreme exhaustion and often a period of depression follows the cocaine high, prompting many to use it on a frequent or at least a regular basis. Cocaine alters the brain neurochemistry, which often leads to long-lasting, if not permanent, dysfunction in thought, memory, or behavior in those who abuse the drug. Cocaine abuse can lead to stroke, heart attack, seizures, and organ dysfunction. Because cocaine is an illegal drug, it is always purchased from a street vendor, who may lace the drug with another white powder, including one of the synthetic narcotics, such as fentanyl. This is often what leads to cocaine overdose deaths, as inhaling or smoking a lethal dose of an unknown synthetic opioid can prove fatal. For those who find themselves addicted to this drug, there are treatment programs out there which can help. But following an appropriate detox period, rehab candidates often need to remain in the program for many weeks. And of course, lifelong abstinence from the drug following detox is essential. Unlike some of the other substances of abuse out there, there is no specific drug or pharmaceutical agent which can help one get off or stay off of cocaine. Whereas methamphetamine has been around for over 100 years, Crystal methamphetamine abuse was almost unheard of in this country prior to the 1990s. At present, over one and a half million Americans now abuse this drug. Like cocaine, methamphetamine gives the user a rush with heightened alertness and energy and gives the user a heightened sense of confidence and power. But unlike cocaine, methamphetamine is cheap and its effects last many hours. Although the addictive potential is just as powerful, if not more so, when compared to cocaine. Heart attack, stroke, congestive heart failure, seizures, and organ failure are common and potentially fatal among those who repeatedly abuse methamphetamine. Non-fatal sequelae of methamphetamine abuse include psychiatric crises, traumatic injury from extreme risk-taking behaviors, and severe dental decay resulting in loss of most, if not all, of one's teeth. Some develop permanent, uncontrollable movement disorders where the body undulates with repeated worm-like activity. There's often permanent brain damage resulting in lifelong dysfunction in one's abilities to integrate with society. Although there are programs available to treat methamphetamine addiction, it is one of the most difficult drugs of abuse to help cure. Because so many methamphetamine abusers develop psychosis, lifelong antipsychotic drugs have proven effective, but additional lifelong psychotherapy is often necessary. 
Benzodiazepine drugs are very popular and include the trade name drugs Xanax, Ativan, Clonopin, Librium, and Ambien. Whereas benzodiazepine abuse only kills about 11,000 people annually, the number of those who regularly use these drugs far outweighs those in the other mentioned categories. Whereas about 30 million Americans take benzodiazepines, about 5 million of them abuse these drugs, and about 600,000 are likely addicted. Benzodiazepines calm the nerves and are often prescribed to patients who have an anxiety disorder to treat acute, acute exacerbations or to mitigate panic attacks. Some take these drugs to help them sleep, but all too often, people who take benzodiazepines with all too frequent regularity become physically dependent, suffering withdrawal symptoms when cut off. A telltale sign of benzodiazepine addiction is the dose one takes. To use the very popular drug Xanax as an example, taking a quarter milligram of the drug makes most rare users calm and often puts them to sleep. But I've known patients who take one or more full milligrams of this drug every six to eight hours and appear wide awake and normal. But that is just an appearance. Whereas they may appear to be normal, their mind is not functioning at its best. I've treated a number of trauma patients who have allegedly zoned out while driving under the influence of these medications, having no apparent recollection of the red light they blew through or the stop sign that they entirely missed just prior to crashing into another vehicle, on occasion killing those in the car they struck. I've treated countless patients who go through benzodiazepine withdrawal during a prolonged hospital stay following, say, a bowel resection or treatment of rib fractures with lung collapse. Benzodiazepine withdrawal looks very much like alcohol withdrawal, where the heart races, the blood pressure climbs to dangerous levels, patients become uncontrollably agitated, the mind develops delirium, patients hallucinate, and seizures can occur. Whereas it would be rare for one addicted to benzodiazepines to die while hospitalized, an overdose while at home could certainly cause one to stop breathing, eventually leading to cardiac arrest and then death. Benzodiazepine abuse treatment starts with detoxification in a medically supervised facility. Once clean, professional counseling and psychotherapy are required to help patients work through the reasons why they started consuming these drugs in the first place and help keep them drug-free. Whereas benzodiazepines remain legal and are in fact some of those popular medications prescribed by doctors in America, abuse of these drugs remains a problem. First and foremost, those who take them must know the realities of these drugs, and those who prescribe them must make a concerted effort to monitor their patient's benzodiazepine use, look for patterns of abuse, and appropriately steer them in a safer direction when any sign of trouble is identified. Where substance abuse is a real problem in this country, I'd like to use this opportunity to take a short break from it all and briefly talk about something entirely unrelated, about something really good about healthcare in America. And these are the dedicated individuals who care for the sickest, most critically ill patients in our hospitals, and they are collectively known as the intensivists. Perhaps you may have never even heard the term intensivist used before, but know that the physicians who fall into this category are truly among the good of healthcare in America. Whereas many different physician specialists treat critically ill patients in our intensive care units, it's the intensivists who run our ICUs, who serve as the overall coordinators of a patient's critical care, who perform life-saving bedside interventions on a day-to-day -day basis, and who run the ventilators which keep our non-breathing patients alive. There are several different specialty pathways which lead one to board certification in critical care, allowing a physician to be called an intensivist. There are the pulmonary intensivists, the surgical intensivists, the anesthesia intensivists, and the neurointensivists. Each of the different flavors of intensivist has a unique niche, but all of them are fully capable of providing full-spectrum critical care to all patients. 
By definition, an intensivist has the medical training and the skills to manage multiple different health problems, including but not limited to shock, heart attack, heart failure, lung failure, brain injury, seizures, diabetic emergencies, blood clotting disorders, treatment of multiple infections, including sepsis, and the prevention and treatment of life-threatening malnutrition. In addition, an intensivist performs certain bedside procedures, such as inserting a breathing tube into the trachea to allow a ventilator to facilitate mechanical ventilation, inserting special long IV catheters deep into the central venous circulation to allow potent medications to safely tighten up a flaccid vascular system or to allow for rapid transfusion of blood products, pacing an electrically dysfunctional heart and re-expanding a collapsed lung via the insertion of a tube through the chest wall. Intensivists are the masters of the ICU, and these are the individuals who save lives and extend lives in those who might otherwise have a poor outcome or die. Intensivists have earned their place among our nation's heroes during the COVID pandemic, as they're likely the ones who have worked harder than any other group of physicians, and they have likely saved more lives than anyone else in our hospitals. As critically ill patients require continuous and ongoing care, intensivists often start their workday as the sun is rising and often do not leave the hospital until well after the sun has set. Most work day and night, and there are only so many board-certified intensivists in this world, and thus the COVID pandemic has required many of them to work around the clock. When this pandemic is finally over, I suggest that all of you who spent any time on a ventilator during the past year to write the intensivist and give a few words of thanks to the intensivist physicians, along with our awesome ICU nurses, who I've previously acknowledged as being true heroes for doing all that they do. Intensivists are exceptional people and are truly exemplary of the good of healthcare in America. Now, at this point, I've already briefly discussed alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, methamphetamine, and benzodiazepine abuse, but there's a much greater abuse problem in this country, which needs everyone's full attention and much more detail, and that is America's opioid crisis. Opioid abuse has been declared an epidemic by the U.S. Surgeon General and has received a great amount of attention nationally. And so that there's no misunderstanding as to what particular drugs I'm talking about, opioids include codeine, hydrocodone, oxycodone, morphine, demerol, dilaudid, fentanyl, methadone, and heroin. These are the controlled substance drugs which relieve pain, but when misused, even when prescribed by well-intentioned medical professionals, they often result in addiction and, in fact, more pain, requiring even greater amounts of the drugs, creating a cycle of dependency that can be impossible to break without professional help. Close to 50,000 people each year die from overdosing on opioids, and most of those deaths are not from heroin overdose, but from pharmaceutical drug overdose. That is, from taking too much of a drug prescribed by a physician and most often filled at a licensed pharmacy in this country. So just how and why does this happen? Countless people in this nation get injured or develop an acute medical condition which causes pain for which physicians, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants prescribe any one of a number of different medications to relieve the discomfort. Surgeons routinely prescribe opioids following surgery. Dentists often prescribe opioids following wisdom teeth extraction. And almost all physicians who take care of inpatients prescribe opioids for a variety of other acutely painful conditions. Opioids cause a feeling of euphoria and relieve pain discomfort by binding to our body's pain receptors, blocking the natural substances which cause us to perceive pain. If our body's natural, pain-causing neurochemicals cannot complete the pathway for us to be aware of pain, we don't feel the pain. But feeling pain is a natural phenomenon. Pain is normal, and in fact, pain is beneficial in some ways as it immediately alerts us to an impending threat to life, such as a sharp object piercing our flesh or something crushing a limb. 
When we accidentally touch a hot stove, we immediately feel pain and we reflexively pull away, as keeping one's hand on the fire would otherwise inevitably lead to an irreversible, destructive outcome. But because pain is natural and normal, and because our bodies were rather smartly assembled, when we block our pain receptors with opioids long enough, our body creates a workaround. It eventually circumvents the drugs by creating even more pain receptors, allowing these new ones to seek out the neurochemical pain substances again, causing us to perceive more pain. And thus, in order to once again achieve a comfortable state, we need even more of the opioid drugs, but over time our bodies again compensate and even more pain receptors are created. This cat and mouse game can continue for very long periods of time, resulting in some patients requiring huge doses of opioids in order to achieve even a mild degree of pain relief. But in the end, the body usually wins, and when left unchecked, when unregulated by a thoughtful professional who carefully regulates exactly how much opioid a patient is prescribed or administered and for how long, opioid addiction develops. After a while, so many new pain receptors have been created by the body that eliminating the opioids results in extreme amounts of pain, real pain, as countless more of our natural pain-producing neurochemicals are now filling numerous additional pain receptors, completing the pain circuits, and causing more pain. In fact, opioid addicts feel pain even when there's no pain stimulus. Removing opioids from an addicted individual causes them to go into a narcotic withdrawal. The symptoms of which, of course, includes uncontrolled pain, but also includes profuse nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal cramping, muscle aches, severe anxiety, and an absolutely intolerable mood. Most people can't deal with their symptoms and seek additional opioids to mitigate their withdrawal, sometimes from their own doctors, from emergency rooms, from the internet, or from street drug vendors. And thus the cycle of abuse and dependency continues often for a lifetime unless professional help is sought. Countless Americans misuse opioid medications, and in fact, over 10 million Americans consume addictive narcotics previously prescribed for them or other patients by a doctor. For example, if a patient breaks his wrist and is seen by an emergency room physician who diagnoses the fracture, splints the extremity, and arranges follow-up with an orthopedic surgeon, a prescription is always written for some sort of narcotic opioid pain reliever. Two days later, the patient sees the orthopedic surgeon who assesses the injury, schedules surgery, and prescribes another batch of opioid painkillers. Several days after that, the patient undergoes surgery and shortly before discharge to home is handed a third prescription for an opioid. The patient takes his medication for a week or two and is pain-free after a while and stops taking his meds. But at least 20 pills are left over, which he puts in the back of his medicine cabinet, saving them for a rainy day. Six months later, he tweaks his back at work. It really hurts, and he doesn't want to miss a paycheck, so he pops a few of the leftover opioid pills from his previous injury. His pain is relieved, but later that evening, he needs to pop a few more as the pain returns and, in fact, is just as bad as it was when he awoke. The next morning, he takes a few more, and then several more throughout the day, and after about four to five days, he has consumed all of his previously leftover opioid medications, but he is still in pain. He knows that his daughter received a prescription for 20 Vicodin after having her wisdom teeth pulled the previous year, and he knows that she only took two pills. So he finds the rest of his daughter's prescription, and over the course of a few more days, he consumes all of them. But he is still in pain. He tells one of his co-workers about his problem, who informs him that he filled a Norco prescription a month prior following a minor procedure, but he never took any of it. He gladly offers his unused bottle of pills to his friend, who graciously accepts and the man with the sore back takes all of them over the course of the next week. But once all of the pills are gone, he again realizes that he is in still significant amounts of pain. By this time, he is somewhat desperate. 
And knowing that he has a buddy who regularly acquires prescription pain pills from some unknown source, he gives him a call. His friend is happy to help, and in short order, a bottle of 30 new opioids is exchanged for a small wad of cash. He takes them several times daily for the next week, but eventually he runs out again and is, of course, still in pain. Soon after consuming nearly 100 narcotic pain pills for a backache that would have likely resolved with rest and over-the-counter anti-inflammatories such as ibuprofen, he realizes that he may have created a problem. He very likely has started to become dependent on opioid narcotics, and that is exactly how most Americans become addicted to pain pills. When I was just starting out as a newly minted physician in 1991, it was commonplace for us to issue a prescription for 30 opioid pain pills for the simplest of surgical procedures, such as following an umbilical hernia repair or after a breast biopsy. For patients who had more substantial procedures, such as following a large abdominal incision to remove a colon cancer, we often prescribed 60 pills. That is what we were taught to do because that was the norm at the time. Nobody ever questioned that we were prescribing too much opioid medication because, in fact, the pharmaceutical companies who manufactured these drugs assured us that they were relatively harmless, which I'll get into in a minute. But in fact, they have never been harmless. Many patients did in fact get addicted to these prescription drugs, and over time, the pharmaceutical companies started making opioid pain pills in double-strength versions and sustained release forms to help manage what was now labeled as chronic pain. This term chronic pain was seen on countless patients' charts and medical records. Indeed, it was a legitimate diagnosis, but frankly, in most cases, it was just a gentler, more politically correct term for opioid addiction. Numerous patients developed chronic pain over the ensuing years and decades, now physically dependent upon and unequivocally addicted to opioid narcotics. It became commonplace for one's primary care physician to refill long-acting, high-dose opioids in large numbers, often well over 100 pills at a time, for years at a time, just to maintain a patient's baseline of chronic pain. The patients were all still in pain, but the prescriptions did prevent the intolerable withdrawal symptoms, allowing them to exist. When these patients got admitted to a hospital for one reason or another and the admitting physician prescribed a normal, usual, and reasonable amount of pain medication, this was entirely insufficient as these patients were often addicted to 10 times the usual dose of opioid narcotics. Patients complained to their nurses and nurses complained to their doctors. Both demanded higher doses of the drugs to control the pain. Doctors and hospitals started to receive complaints that they weren't controlling their patients' pain and a lot of social and political pressure ensued, forcing healthcare professionals to step it up and to address their patients' pain medication requirements. And thus, the cycle of opioid abuse continued. And in fact, it worsened for many years. In 2017, it was, it was estimated that over 300,000 people had died as a result of what was starting to be referred to as the opioid epidemic. It was also made known that the majority of Americans addicted to these substances all started out by consuming pain medications prescribed by their doctor. It was alleged that the major pharmaceutical companies who manufactured the most popular opioid narcotics intentionally misled doctors and their patients, withholding the details of the addictive nature of these medications and aggressively promoting the prescribing of their products via questionable methods and tactics. By this time, most doctors had become well aware of the opioid crisis in America, and many simply stopped prescribing these medications other than perhaps on a one-time basis following a surgical procedure. A number of primary care physicians who previously refilled prescription for high-dose large volumes of opioids for years in many cases cut off their patients entirely. Many patients went through opioid withdrawal and simply could not tolerate the suffering. So they sought out alternative sources of narcotics. Some sought the services of a physician pain specialist who prescribed different types of opioids. 
Other patients doctor shopped, going from provider to provider, often in multiple regions, very much remote from the others in order to get as much of the addictive substances that each one would prescribe. Some went to physician pill mills, where shady doctors with otherwise failing practices wrote out high-volume, high-dose opioid prescriptions in exchange for cash payments, no questions asked. Others turned to the internet, somehow obtaining the controlled substances via quasi-doctor-patient relationships established on the World Wide Web. And the most desperate of those in opioid withdrawal went to the streets, sometimes scoring black market prescription narcotics at a substantial price markup, but sometimes turning to heroin if they had no other alternative. Unfortunately, taking street narcotics or heroin often led to opioid overdose and remains an ongoing problem presently. Patients think that they're purchasing a pharmaceutical-grade opioid pain pill, identical to what one might obtain in a pharmacy, but in fact, they may be buying a cheap knockoff, often a derivative of the powerful drug fentanyl, which when taken in even slightly larger than normal doses can cause one to lose consciousness, stop breathing, and when the oxygen levels drop to a level below that which can sustain life, their heart stops. Unless immediate resuscitation is available and a ready dose of Narcan is administered, which is an opioid antagonist or a reversal agent, the person dies. And that is the crux of the problem. People with no other alternatives may turn to the streets, which may be laced with a powerful opioid substitute, resulting in a drug overdose and death. Fortunately, the federal government and all of our state's public health agencies spearheaded opioid awareness programs, prescriber education projects, and opioid addiction treatments. For the first time in my career, all physicians, advanced practice nurses, and physician assistants who held a federal DEA-controlled substance license were required to take mandatory courses on the opioid problem in America, and the state governments all implemented online prescription monitoring programs where all patients who fill a prescription for any federally controlled substance including opioids and benzodiazepines, get entered into a database for any and all providers to view. The goal of this database is to prevent substance abusers who go from doctor to doctor seeking additional prescriptions from acquiring large stockpiles of these addictive substances. The goal was and remains to break the culture of abuse. As we are all now required to use uh, one of the many electronic prescribing programs, before we can enter an order for a controlled substance, we are now first taken to the state prescription monitoring program website where we are required to review the patient's database prior to writing for any new prescription. In addition, all physicians have been issued opioid prescribing guidelines, which essentially minimizes the number of prescribed opioids to only that which is essential for a three-day period. So for example, whereas some physicians used to issue a prescription for 30 5 milligram Norco tablets following a repair of an inguinal hernia, we are now only supposed to write for 10. The goal of these new opioid prescribing guidelines is to eliminate the excesses of unused opioids sitting in a patient's medicine cabinet, thus eliminating the primary pathway of future opioid abuse and addiction. The government also spearheaded the widespread availability of the drug Narcan, otherwise known as naloxone which is an injectable antidote of sorts indicated to immediately reverse an opioid overdose. I have known about this drug for about 40 years as I remember doctors giving this to unconscious heroin addicts when I was an emergency room technician back in 1981. A completely obtunded patient given a single dose of Narcan often woke up within seconds of the medication leaving the syringe. Of course, this precipitated immediate drug withdrawal, which made most addicts violently angry. But the drug was and remains a lifesaver and is now carried by nearly every paramedic and even most police officers who are very often the first ones called to the scene of an unconscious, drug-addicted individual. For those patients who have been prescribed large numbers of high-dose opioid narcotics for many years, 
Doctors are, are now requiring their patients to submit to the terms of an opioid patient prescriber agreement, which is essentially a pain medication contract between a chemically dependent patient and his or her physician. These agreements require a lengthy discussion as to the benefits, risks, and alternatives of opioids, the details of which drug dose and number of pills the provider will write for over what specified period of time, and the consequences of violating that agreement. The goal is again to minimize abuse, to prevent escalation of the substances used, and in the best cases, to slowly taper down the prescribed substances over time. Of course, there are a lot of patients out there who are not happy with these new arrangements, which often makes these agreements difficult to manage at very least. Fortunately, the federal government has also championed a number of opioid treatment programs, which center on a combination of long-acting drug therapy and behavioral counseling. This combination therapy, known as medication-assisted treatment, or MAT therapy, includes the substitution of the former opioid drug of abuse with a different type of opioid, which has both pain-relieving qualities as well as certain antagonistic qualities which minimize overdose. The most common drug used in MAT therapy is Suboxone and combines the drug buprenorphine, which is a pain reliever, with naloxone, which is an opioid receptor blocker. Suboxone thus prevents opioid withdrawal symptoms, helps control pain, but also helps prevent one from overdosing on the medication or on any other acquired opioid along the way. Suboxone binds to the same brain receptors that the naturally occurring and synthetic opioid drugs try to attach to, thus minimizing the narcotic high or other euphoric effects of this drug and prevents the narcotic cravings those who are addicted typically have. Where Suboxone isn't perfect, as it certainly can be abused, it definitely minimizes the likelihood of a fatal overdose, and that in and of itself is noteworthy. Of course, like most things that sound too good to be true, most physicians who prescribe opioids do not prescribe Suboxone. As it's a bit complicated to understand and know how to use, but if someone with a heroin or a prescription opioid addiction problem wants to get real help, there's likely a core group of addiction specialists in every large community with the training and experience necessary to prescribe this drug. I hope that by this point, I've given you at least some increased awareness of just how troubling the substance abuse problem is in this country. I want to reiterate that at least some portion of this epidemic is linked to the even more pervasive mental health care crisis we have in America. Substance abuse is a $750 million per year problem which results in missed work, lost wages, and avoidable health-related and legal costs. And it creates so much dysfunction in the home, at work, and within society that it's likely impossible to capture the full extent of its damage. As I pointed out, substance abuse shortens lives and thus snuffs out so many Americans in what could have otherwise been their most productive years, but hopefully increased awareness as to the very harmful side of substance abuse, increased awareness of our need to care for those afflicted with mental illness, increased understanding of how mood-altering drugs can lead to physical dependency and addiction, and the availability of various substance abuse treatment programs may slowly turn the course of this ongoing epidemic problem. And for those of you who may realize that you or someone close to you has an opioid abuse problem, know that our government has made it a priority to help those in need. MAT therapy and Suboxone programs have made pain pill dependency and heroin addiction a treatable condition which save lives. And so no matter how you slice it, that is a good thing. And finally, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has established a 24-hour free and confidential treatment and referral helpline, which I encourage anyone with a substance abuse problem to call. That number is 1-800-662-HELP. Again, that's 1-800-662-HELP. 
And that concludes this podcast on America's substance abuse crisis and the opioid epidemic. I'm Dr. James Cole, and this is Healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Thank you for listening. This podcast and the rest of the podcasts in this series reflect my opinions and do not necessarily represent the positions of any other institution or entity. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Marie Hathaway for the artwork and for producing this podcast. And I hope that you enjoyed the guitar music because that is me playing and taking my own creative liberties. And we hope that you will again join us for our next episode of Healthcare in America, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly.